Well, good evening. Please take a seat. My name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I, sorry? Good evening. <laughs> Something about that, right? Um, it's the morning. It's so dark. That's why. Um, glad that you're here. Usually it's the other way around. It's usually you're in the evening and you say good morning. I've never done that before. So I'm glad that you have uh, witnessed that. Um, I'm here to welcome. I've only got a small thing to do and here I am taking all this time. Um, okay, Lloyd. Okay. <laughs> Um, let me welcome, let me welcome uh, Richard. Richard Sandlin, you know him very well. Many of you do. Um, I was thinking how to introduce you to him. Every team, every sports team needs um, a squad, right? And uh, they need a squad of players. You can't just have your first 11 or your first 15 or your first five. You need a player that can kind of play in every position, that if someone gets injured, they will just kind of step in. That if you need someone to do something, they will just kind of come in and do that. And my team is Liverpool, I follow them, and the player is James Milner. He's 36, even though your peak is at 28, 29, 30 in football. Thanks, Lloyd. He's still, <laughs> he's still one of the most important players there because he plays in every single position, and wherever you need him to be, he will be, and he gives 100% every time. So, all that to say. <laughs> uh, Richard is one uh, who has been here uh, for many years, who's served in probably every position that there is to serve here, whether that's... Um, uh, welcoming people, praying, uh, reading, um, serving, and uh, he is in the process of, of, of um, well, he has been accepted for ordination in the church, so there are going to be other roles for him to step into, so he'll be all the more um, stepping into lots of different um, roles and responsibilities, but we're glad to that today you are preaching, and, um, and yeah. actually later on we're going to announce that he's going to get involved in another way as well, but we'll leave that till the announcement. Keeps getting worse. I know. So, um, we're grateful for you. Why don't I pray for you? Father, thank you that you are good, that your love endures forever. Um, thank you that you love us, that we are your children, uh, that you um, are working amongst us. And we pray uh, and are grateful for your word, uh, for the ways in which um, you have uh, uh, spoken, that you haven't left us in the dark, you haven't said, uh, here, get on with things, but you've given your word to us to read, um, but you've given your living word for us to, to know, uh, to walk alongside, to have um, live the life uh, that, that we um, are supposed to live, that, that, that has come and uh, given himself for us, revealed you to us. So we thank you um, for Richard and ask that as he speaks to us, that, that it be your words that, that sink into our hearts, that are burned into our hearts, that change us. Would you use him this morning, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Good morning, St. Peter's. Morning. Happy Labor Day. Uh, I was actually just sitting over here and felt moved to, I, I need probably not usually comment on a Labor Day sermon, but pre-Labor Day. But God sort of put it on my heart to really remember and pray for those who labor, especially those who serve, uh, especially we live in an area where those who serve also struggle to make it. So pray for them this week. Um, thank, thank someone who serves you this week. That's been on my heart today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oh God, may your spirit guide us in the understanding of your word. Amen. Well, the verger is in the pulpit. This should go well. I've spent much of my life in the halls of academia, 
surrounded by fiercely intelligent academic philosophers. The one, I must add, not always wise. Intelligent, but not always wise. At one time, I would have aspired to join their ranks, but I should have stopped to join the ranks of the wise instead. But if I'm being honest, I was and still am very far from wise. Now, wisdom is not the same as knowledge or intelligence. It took me a PhD to understand this, but I know most people figure it out on their own. <laughs> knowledge is bound up in proper beliefs about the world. I know that my suit is blue. But as St. Paul reminds us, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Enter wisdom. Wisdom is bound up in insight, virtue, and discernment. Poets, writers, and yes, even philosophers have provided wise sayings. Here's one of my favorites. The 19th century Scottish preacher and fantasy book writer, George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis's hero and idol, look him up. He wrote, and I'm translating into modern speech, in winter, let my glowing fireplace welcome me to my room. In summer, let it be a vase of flowers. If I don't have these, let me think how nice they would be as I bury myself in my work. The road to contentment does not lie in despising what we don't have. Let us acknowledge all the good, all the delight in the world, and be content without it. There is so much good in the world that we should not seek to own or control. What a wise and countercultural statement. In our age, we are told to take the waiting out of wanting. We're told to take the waiting out of wanting. McDonald implores us to take the wanting out of waiting. We wait on God, content with what he has already given us. This thought, this, yeah, this thought is dripping with insight, virtue, and discernment. In other words, this is wisdom. We can draw on a biblical example of wisdom, famously, King Solomon. He was wise in his handling of the two women, each claiming the same child as their own. And now I'm going to do something that has likely never been done in the history of St. Peter's Fireside. Read from the Apocrypha. Okay, in the book, Wisdom of Solomon, the, book is, the title pretty much tells you what the book is about. In the book, Wisdom of Solomon, Solomon prays for wisdom. This is a good example that we can ask God to bestow his grace on us. We can ask him for wisdom. I'm going to recite the prayer in full. This is from Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 15 to 22. May God grant that I speak with judgment and have thoughts worthy of what I have received. For he is the guide even of wisdom and the corrector of the wise. For both we and our words are in his hand, as are all understanding and skill and crafts. For it is he who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists, to know the structure of the world and the activity of the elements the beginning and end and middle of times, the alterations of the solstices and the changes of the seasons, the cycles of the year and the constellations of the stars, the natures of animals and the tempers of wild beasts, 
the power of spirits and the reasonings of human beings, the varieties of plants and the virtues of roots. I learned both what is secret and what is manifest. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. That last sentence is key. For wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. It's almost as if the writer is telling us that wisdom is a person. Let's keep that in our minds as we move forward. For now, we have to ask a question. What does it take to be wise? The psalmist tells us where to start. The fear of the Lord. Reverence is one way to understand what the psalmist is getting at here. We are to revere God. We are to show God profound and loving awe and respect. Why? Because God is powerful, majestic, and holy. But how can we revere God in the muck and mire of everyday life? There are many ways, but I'll touch on just a few. Prayer is one way to revere God. We don't approach God as if he were our friend that we shoot the breeze with. We approach him as a God of power and majesty who is also loving and everywhere present. Communion is another way to revere God. We approach the table with our hearts attuned to the sacrifice and presence of Christ. We don't partake of his body and blood in a carefree manner as if we get a little snack of wafer and port. We can do better on the snack front, let's be honest. Finally, becoming attuned to divine providence is another way to revere God. The great Eastern Orthodox priest and theologian, Father Alexander Shmaimon, once wrote that a Christian is the one who, wherever he looks, finds Christ and rejoices in him. And this joy transforms all his human plans and programs, decisions and actions. Finding Christ in everything is a major affirmation of God's power. That this kind of reverence leads to joy makes it all the sweeter. How do we at St. Peter's revere God? We do it in many ways. I'll mention just a few. We kneel when we pray confession, something we just did. We pray the creed and the Lord's prayer. Yes, these can easily become empty rituals, but we approach these acts, but if we approach these acts in a reverential spirit, they will never be empty, but spirit-filled rituals, indeed wisdom-filled ritual. We kneel and pray because we worship a powerful, majestic, and holy God. Now, you might be thinking, I don't see or even feel much reverence. This begs the question, what would the psalmist think of the era that we live in today? We live in an overly casual environment, one where reverence has basically been sucked out of the world. We re why revere anything in a world devoid of God and his presence? We see this especially in our throwaway culture. We don't see all of creation and life itself as a gift from God. We dispose of technology and food one day past its expiration date. I do that all the time. We dispose of clothing in pursuit of fashion and fill landfills. In doing so, we're disposing of our planet, the air, mountains, forests, rivers, and oceans which sustain our life. 
We dispose of life itself. From the poor and homeless, the sick and dying, our own lives, to the most vulnerable, the unborn. Sadly, this lack of reverence occurs in our churches on Sunday morning. The church is Christ's body, communing together as one in adoration of our Lord. We enter the sanctuary chatting with friends, exchanging words, rather than preparing to receive the word. We might even sneak a peek at our phones while being led in worship and hope that we might see something exciting while failing to revere the most exciting presence before us, Jesus Christ himself. I would know because I regularly do this. I'm preaching largely to myself. Notice what all this means. The psalmist says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We live in an age of little or no reverence. So if the psalmist is right, and he is, then we live in an unwise age. We can't even reach the beginning of wisdom, let alone the end. We must revere God to even start walking the wisdom path. I'm, I've actually been inclined to think that arrogance is the word that future generations will most likely describe our age. And I especially think uh, in many areas, but I think especially in the way that we use technology to control and, and uh, sort of capture and change and morph and shape human nature and the environment. Just an aside. Um, something to think about. But there's another way to understand what the psalmist is saying. As my friend, the Reverend Dr. Cannon, Alistair Cern says, remember that guy? What, whatever, whatever happened to him? Anyway, as my friend, the Reverend Dr. Cannon, Alistair Cern says, sometimes we should actually fear God, literally. In the Old Testament, we read that the Israelites assembled at Horeb cried out, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. In the Gospels, we read that the unclean spirits cry out to Jesus, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's remarkable. The demons know who Jesus is. That's a remarkable statement, that verse. They know who he is. Now, the word fear is not used in these verses, but we read fear just below the surface. Fear that God will kill or that Christ will destroy. In 1 Chronicles 13, 12, we do read of fear. David has just heard or seen Uzzah killed by God for touching the Ark of the Covenant. And David was afraid of God that day. Now, we must be aware of an important point here. We fear God not because he's a petty and vindictive deity, but because he is holy, majestic, and powerful. And herein lies our liberation from anxiety and worry. God is majestic powerful and holy, and loving and caring. He uses his power, majesty, and holiness for us and his creation. He is constantly at work powering his providence for the good of our lives. Fearing God can release us from fear of the world, flesh, and devil. God, through Christ and the Spirit, has conquered all of these. God does not seek our fear for subjection, but liberation. 
I'm not suggesting now that those of us with clinical anxiety are somehow doing something wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm talking about the everyday worries and anxieties that all of us experience. There's another point. Notice that the psalmist says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If this is the beginning, what is the end? What is wisdom for? What begins as a path carved in the fear and reverence of God ends at the manger, the cross, and the tomb. We usually think of Christ as the gateway to God the Father, and he most certainly is. But when it comes to wisdom, God the Father is the gateway to Christ. There is a rich tradition in our faith of interpreting the um, wisdom discussed in Proverbs 8 as referring to the eternal Son of God. This was a key passage used by the church fathers against the heretical Arians to argue the truth of the Trinity. I'm going to quote Proverbs 8, 22 to 31 in full. Proverbs 8, 22 to 31. Speaking as the narrator, wisdom, wisdom is the narrator in this passage, we read, The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Church fathers like Origen, Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, and contemporary scholars like N.T. Wright interpret this passage as referring to God's eternal Son before he became incarnate as Jesus Christ. In other words, they interpret Proverbs 8 as identifying God's Son with wisdom itself. This would mean that Jesus was and is the embodiment of wisdom. Remember our reading of Solomon's prayer? It is Christ himself who Solomon prays to when asking for wisdom. As Paul himself says, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. Brief interlude, this has become a handkerchief sermon. We can now see the path. Literally, fearing God shows that we know who God is. You could say we are wise to God. As Holy Scripture and our rich, rich Orthodox tradition show, this starts us on a path that ends in Jesus Christ. God's Son was incarnated and so can empathize with us, was crucified to save and liberate us, and rose again to defeat death so that we may live eternally in the new heavens and the new earth. Is there any better news than this? 
Perhaps I, that's why they call it the good news. Not a good news or a piece of good news. The good news. Living in Christ through the Spirit is the end of wisdom. What wisdom is for. We gain our truest insight, virtue, and discernment when we embody Christ in our lives for the good of our souls and creation. Christ came to usher in his kingdom. He did not come to start a political movement or simply usher our souls into heaven. We participate in God's kingdom through our union with Christ. Wisdom is found in our union with Christ. He is our example. Christ's wisdom is calling us to repent of our sins in showing due reverence to God our Father, in standing up to the strong when they oppress the weak, in loving the good of creation, in showing us how to open ourselves to the movement of the Holy Spirit, in seeing God and his providence everywhere, in showing kindness to strangers, in fighting for life, in clothing, feeding, and sheltering the homeless. We become Christ-like through the slow, steady process, gifted by God through the Holy Spirit, of shaping our souls into Christ's likeness. Theologians call this sanctification. We can also call it true life, after the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Christ is the end. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and Christ is the end. We pray, O Lord, that you give each of us the gift of wisdom, and that we may use it to your glory now and forever. Amen.